Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is former journalist and current crime novelist Hillary Davidson. Hillary started as an intern at Harper's Magazine in New York before joining the editing staff for the Canadian Living Magazine in Toronto. She became a freelance writer, composed 18 nonfiction books, and her articles appeared in a wide array of international publications. Her award-winning short fiction has appeared in a number of publications as well, including anthologies and a collection called The Black Widow Club, Nine Tales of Obsession and Murder. In 2011, Hillary's debut novel, called The Damage Done, won the Anthony and Crime Spree Awards for Best First Novel and launched the Lily Moore series. She had a standalone thriller published in 2014, and her latest novel, entitled One Small Sacrifice, published on June 1, begins a new series for her. Hillary has served on the National Board of the Mystery Writers of America, as well as that organization's New York State Board. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Hillary. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Gavin. Oh, we're we're happy to have you. I'm I'm reading your your latest book right now, One Small Sacrifice, and um, especially from from a cop's perspective, it feels very authentic to me, especially in your portrayal of the detectives and their investigation. For listeners who are unfamiliar with this book, uh, what do you, what do you want them to know about it in this series? Well, first of all, thank you so much for saying that because um, it is delightful to hear that the police investigation aspect of the book, you know, rings true and seems authentic. My earlier books, um, I was writing from the perspective of an amateur sleuth, which is mm -hmm. a very different world. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited that this one's working. Uh, what I'll say about the book, and, you know, no spoilers about it, but the story's told from the point of view of several characters. And... Really, the, the central character of the book is an NYP detective named Sharon Sterling. Um, she finds out that there's a, a sort of the start of a missing persons case. It's a doctor who's gone missing and who wasn't reported missing by her boyfriend. Mm. Now, the boyfriend, Alex Trainer, is of particular interest to Detective Sterling because he was involved in the death of another woman a year earlier. He was not charged in that crime. Um, they were both high on drugs at the time, and the woman fell from the roof of his building. And, you know, there was conflicting evidence. It wasn't really clear what had happened, and there weren't any other witnesses. And basically, Alex Trainer had walked on a technicality um, involving the collection of evidence. And so Sharon has kept her eye on him ever since. And so now that his girlfriend has gone missing, she is deeply concerned. Um, though further complicating matters is that you see the story also from Alex's perspective. Um, he's a war journalist, um, a photographer who has PTSD, and he has attempted to treat his condition by self-medicating. Mm -hmm. um, he's used illegal drugs in the past, he's used alcohol, and he has blackout periods, which have not been, you know, helped by the drugs. And so, to some extent, he doesn't know himself what's happened. And so even though you get the story from his perspective, it's not like, you know, a villain telling you the story of what's happened. It's like he actually wants to know um, what's happened to his girlfriend as well. So, yeah, so you come at the story from different perspectives and, you know, hopefully that uh, holds the reader's interest. Yeah, and unless you've kept it off the internet, um, I don't see any police credentials in your background. Uh, how did you go about researching <laughs> 
in, in, in composing Detective Sharon and her, uh, Sharon Sterling and her background? You know, I, I will say one of the amazing things um, about uh, doing this kind of work is that you meet so many terrifically generous people. I have mm -hmm. met so many, um, you know, terrific law enforcement officers, medical examiners, um, people who work in these, uh, you know, stressful jobs where they're dealing with the darkest sort of elements of humanity, you know, day in and day out. And a lot of those people are actually really generous about um, information, um, you know, with sort of answering questions, sometimes giving tours. And I know some of the access I've been given, I've been told, like, you know, keep this quiet, but you know, I'll tell you this thing. So I always have to be very careful on couching, like where I necessarily got certain parts of information. But um, yeah, it, it honestly, it's sort of like having made this uh, sort of great network of people that I can turn to for advice. One of the things, in all honesty, that is not so hard to get these days is just the sort of general forensic data because mm -hmm. that's pretty widely available and there are manuals about that and guides to that and you know even people who watch television shows and read books they have you know some sense of how data you know how forensics are done even if it's not fully accurate even if they think that a talk screen can be done in you know two days or something there's a there's a sense that they know what the procedures are but it's more from hanging out with these people from talking with them that you get a sense of how they operate in their world and how they relate to each other um i think one of the most important relationships in the book is you know sharon and her new partner on the force rafael mendoza because they haven't worked together for very long he's transferred from los angeles they have very different working styles and sort of their interaction had to feel sort of natural and real in a way it had to be a little bit of a source of conflict but there also had to be a sense of like a team coming together and um honestly like i don't think that that would be easy to represent if you didn't spend time with you know total strangers who are you know cops are forced to work together in pairs often with you know someone they don't know well don't trust don't necessarily like and how do you talk to someone you're spending 10 or 12 hours a day together with so it was stuff like that that i got from um talking to people hanging out with people also um and this always disturbs people a little bit but the sort of gallows humor that's in the mm -hmm. book as well um comes through as well um there was one time I was having dinner with a cop friend of mine and just sort of out of the blue, he asked if I wanted to see this body that had been discovered <laughs> in a pretty <laughs> terrible circumstance. To be clear, not a murder, but just a body yes. that had, hadn't been discovered for a very long time. So it was in yes. this rather advanced state of decay. And, you know, I was all like, oh, that would be great. <laughs> and my yes. husband was there too. And my husband was just sort of head in hands, like, what is wrong with you guys? Um, but you sort of, you know, have to roll with it. Like, this is what people see in their day-to-day -day lives, in their jobs, and there's a certain kind of, um, like, they have to be able to um, sort of handle that. They have to be able to sort of put that in the right box so that it's not troubling them later, and dealing with it with humor is a way that people do that. So I wanted that to be realistic in the book, too. Yeah, and I, I would expect, based on what I've, I've read of the book so far, that, and, and, and now knowing that, you know, you've got relationships with with uh, with law enforcement officers I, I'm inclined to believe that they must be really good relationships and they must really trust you um, because one of the things that you've done really well in this so far is the um, 
the inclusion and portrayal of, of Sterling's personal life and her struggles with her husband and also his struggles with the demands of her job. Um, that I think that gets kind of caricatured and typecast in a lot of, a lot of formats, a lot of TV shows and books, but um, you know, a lot of people don't really dig into that aspect of police life. And it is such a, such a big deal to us. And I, I really appreciated that, that you included that and that this isn't just a alcoholic divorce detective down on his luck story. Right. I, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you say that because I always feel like these, um, these things intrigue me and I never know if they intrigue other people. And there are, you know, books I read and shows that I watch. I just recently started watching um, a show called Barry, which is about a serial yes. killer who accidentally becomes an actor. And in one of the very early episodes, episode two or episode three, I remember there's sort of this ongoing joke about, you know, a homicide detective and he got married. But of course, you know, six months later it broke up because, haha, how could it not? And this sort of awful, like, it's like a just a thing that people kind of poke fun at you know this character mm -hmm. breaks down in tears at times and it's like haha his marriage broke up and it's like no not funny <laughs> like that I understand that there are these tropes that people play with and it is you know a darkly I'm not saying it's not appropriate for that show but yes you know it's handled like that in a very cavalier way very often and I think one of the most interesting things about characters any character you know criminal cop bystander is the psychology of that character sort of mm -hmm. looking at the underpinnings of what makes that person tick and I don't think you can do that if you don't look at the relationships that they have around them and so uh, to me that's all part of the supporting structure of the book it would be less interesting if this were just about a single case it's much more interesting I think when you expand the lens and take a broader look at you know the people who investigate the case as well it sort of their lives and how the case impacts them, how other cases in the past have impacted on them too. So it all comes together to tell the story. Yeah. And that's why one of, one of my favorite uh, TV crime shows uh, was Southland. I don't um, assume it, it might've run. Never seen that. I've heard yeah. great things, but I have not seen that yet. No, yeah, it, is, it is really worth a watch. Um, they do a fantastic job of, you know, the on the job problems and the realities, especially of, as that it follows a group of patrol cops, a group of detectives, um, and but they follow all these people home and all of their personal struggles, their family problems, their you know uh, one of them's dealing with addiction, um, one of them's dealing with trying to um, come out of the closet and tell his uh, tell his coworkers that that he's gay, uh, which to him conflicts with his bravado as a as a street cop, and it's. It's an incredible, uh, really incredible series, um, and wow. it really, uh, I thought, did a fantastic job of giving those characters uh, a very three-dimensional reality and, you know, letting a lot of their other life experiences show, like you talked about being that whole person, whole character. Um, on, on that note, I, I understand that there's some of your own personal experiences and some of your own kind of backstory that's played into this, and particularly with the, the character trainer. Right, because um, as I mentioned, that character, Alex Trainer suffers from PTSD. In his case, um, from his time in battlefields around the world working as a war photographer, 
um, that was something that was very personal to me that I put into the book. Um, and honestly, it took me a really long time to get around um, to writing about. But um, what happened to me was that when I was 22, at my first job out of college, um, I worked for um, a the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, Canadian Department in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a terrific place to work. It was really lovely. I was working on a PR campaign that they were having, but the office also helped um, veterans directly. There were a lot of counselors and nurses and different people um, who assisted veterans. But, you know, I think as much as any office like that does, there are always people who are underserved and in particular people with mental illnesses. And there was one veteran who had become homeless. Um, he, you know, he was in a really dark place and he decided that he wanted to kill his counselor. But, um, sort of on the road to doing that, he also decided that he just hated the whole office and wanted to kill everyone in the office. And mm -hmm. so he um, decided to do that by starting a fire. And we were on the seventh floor of an office building. And I still remember the day he came in, he came in early one morning and he had a big container with him. It turned out to be gasoline that he poured from, our office was a U shape and poured like from one um, door to the other. And I remember going to like the door of my cubicle, like the edge of it and mm -hmm. watching him and thinking, you know, what is going on and you know someone's going to stop him but no one stopped him and I mm -hmm. saw him come to the end and start the fire and literally it shot like from you know carpet to ceiling like this wall of flame and all I remember after that is I know I ran I don't really remember how I got out of the office we were seven mm -hmm. stories up um, I do remember being down on the sidewalk afterwards um, it's one of those memories that some parts of it are so sharp and other parts of it have just vanished and in all of this time have never come back. Um, but it wasn't really the end of the story, just getting out of the fire, because in weeks and months after that, I started having these um, like strange uncomfortable feelings I'd never had mm -hmm. before where I would be out in public and a person would do something very innocuous the first time it happened I was on the subway and someone reached into a bag and I was convinced the person was pulling a gun out like I just went into this panic state because I thought yes. another attack was about to happen and so that started happening and there you know there were nightmares and things too but it was the stuff that happened during my waking hours that I felt that I should be able to control that I couldn't control that um, that really felt painful and um, like Alex I would avoid certain situations I would um, I really hated sort of crowded spaces mm -hmm. anywhere where there were a lot of people I was fine um, at home at work in a place where I felt comfortable um, you know a park was fine you know if there were a ton of people around it wasn't um, the same as being agoraphobic or something but it it was really hard to be around groups of people. And it took a long time for those feelings to go away. And looking back, I feel like a lot of that is because I didn't want to talk about it at the time. Um, we had some counseling like right after the fire, but it was like group kind of counseling that told mm -hmm. us that, you know, it was normal to feel depressed and it was normal to, you know, have sad feelings. And it really, you know, didn't do very much for me. And so my response was just to sort of, you know, keep quiet about it because I thought if I told people they would think I was crazy. Right. And uh, it was 
funny, like what ended up sort of forcing me to talk about it completely by accident was a few years later, um, I was serving jury duty and the judge um, put us, we were put on a panel um, where the judge wanted to ask us if we'd ever been the victim of a crime. And when it came around to my turn, I just burst into tears, which is mm -hmm. something that has never happened to me in public. I'm not a crier and I, you know, I just, I couldn't articulate it. I couldn't say what had happened. I just cried. And so, um, you know, word to the wise, if you ever want to get dismissed from jury <laughs> duty, a very fast way to do it is to break into tears in the courtroom. They were lovely and kind and very gentle. And, um, you know, court officer went and got me water and they, you know, it was my day one of jury duty and they excused me for the next five years. So they were very <laughs> sweet. Um, but it actually it, it made me go that night. I was part of a writer's group um, and I had you know to go to that group that night. And when we were talking at the very beginning, I just felt like I really had to tell them what had happened that day. And they were all agog because I had never told them anything about the fire, anything about, you know, PTSD, any of these things afterwards. And um, I was, I think, kind of thrilled because instead of acting like, oh, wow, you're crazy, you have mental problems, they wanted to learn more, they wanted mm -hmm. to understand. And so, you know, they encouraged me to start writing about it. So I started writing nonfiction, I started writing essays about what had happened to me. Um, and it's taken me a really long time to get to the point where I put it into fiction. Um, I think because there's a sense like when you put a lot of yourself into a character, mm -hmm. you can tend to over identify with that character. You don't want the character to be a proxy for you. You want them to stand apart as a separate individual. And by sort of putting this, you know, this PTSD with, you know, with Alex, I was very careful to shape it very differently. Um, I would say his case is far more severe. Um, he tries to self-medicate with drugs. Like he is really, um, he has the same feelings about crowds that I had. He does react to some of the same stimuli where, you know, he's always on edge. Um, but he certainly has like far more challenges and difficulties with it. Um, he is though just as um, reluctant to talk about it as I was at one time. So it was a very personal connection. Um, but one of the things that made me happy is the reaction that people have had to talking about PTSD in the book. Um, it feels like it's kind of opened up conversations and people yes. actually do want to know more. There's a little, I mean, in, in our society, we kind of have this understanding that um, soldiers you know, come back from war and that there are many people who are marked by this, but there's not as much of an understanding that just people who are victims of crimes, um, people who are in accidents, that like there are these traumatic events that can happen that actually change how your brain works because your brain won't process certain memories. And so they kind of become like landmines where they can pop up at any time. So I'm really grateful if this book sort of makes people um, number one, sort of understand how there are lots of people functioning in society who are actually suffering from trauma and carry the burden of that with them. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm really happy if it makes people want to learn more about PTSD as well, because I think that these are conversations that we should be having. Yeah, and I, I, I'm incredibly grateful that, that, you've, that you're putting this out and, and using all of your sphere of influence and span of control to to bring this more to the, the forefront of, uh, of our collective consciousness. I think it's an unbelievably important thing 
Um, and as you mentioned, not just for uh, soldiers, not just for first responders, but for folks who have been in some sort of traumatic event um, to know that, you know, a lot of the things they're experiencing are both normal, predictable to a large degree, um, and also that they can, um, you know, minimize or recover from them over time with, with help, with therapy, with time. Um, right. And, yeah. you know, it's, I think, one of the, the things, especially here, here in the States, that has been improving in the last couple of years, but you know, at, at a little bit of a glacial pace, is is our general dealings with um, with uh, with mental health issues in the public sphere, and um, mm -hmm. realizing that you know, mental illness overall should be treated and thought of as, in my mind, as any other illness. You know, if someone has diabetes, we don't sideline them from society you know they, they have access, yes access absolutely um, it's you know it's a terrible thing that i think historically what people have done there have been sort of two things one is that people are tended to be you know grouped as well if you're mentally ill you're not part of the normal population mm -hmm. and so someone who's suffering from depression someone who's got you know whatever the issue is you don't want to be grouped as mentally ill. Like you want to be part of the normal population. You don't want to be segregated that way. And there's so much shame and stigma that's historically been attached to these things. And even now, I mean, it's, you know, one of the things like, honestly, with certain first responders, like some of the people I know have basically experienced trauma, mm -hmm. had symptoms of PTSD, didn't feel that they could talk about it because it would threaten their jobs. Like there's this sense of, you know, especially I think for men, like you, you know, really aren't supposed to talk about this. It's sort of like not right. the, the masculine thing to do. Um, it's, and instead it sort of keeps people trapped. It keeps people feeling shame. It keeps them from getting help that they need. And I think it would be so much healthier if we did look at mental illness as any other kind of illness, understanding that there are people who have chronic conditions that they may have throughout their entire lives, mm -hmm. but there are all kinds of conditions that might be temporary that, um, you know, a person might have for a certain period of time that there can be help with, that there can be therapy. It could be medication, whatever it is that they need that can move them back into a good place and you know the more we talk about that the more open we are I think the more we we help people with that and kind of normalize it because nobody should feel afraid to talk about it nobody should feel stigmatized and you know that they're you know not part of the normal world anymore just because they're suffering from an illness no and and my my personal conviction um, along those lines are that there are very few, especially at least from from my perspective and my own experience, there are very few, if any, uninjured officers and uninjured firefighters in a, in a mental mm -hmm. state, in a mental from a mental perspective. And um, yeah. almost all of us deal with with uh, with PTS um, in some form or for some time or sometimes forever um, because right. of our jobs. But like you mentioned, nobody wants to talk about it. Um, for the benefit of the listening audience, there's a fantastic um, book written by a former uh, retired Pima County Sheriff's deputy from Arizona, uh, who's a uh, doctor of psychology, um, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. And he has a book out that's been out for uh, probably 15 years now at this point, but it's uh, called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. And it's a short read. Um, but it's uh, a, effectively a how-to guide 
for for cops to deal with the stress of work and from a reference perspective um, would be incredibly valuable for folks who don't have access or don't have the trusted relationships like you have Hillary where people are willing to talk about and disclose these things to you um, it would be uh, would be really good but it sounds like a great resource anyway like it sounds yes. like even with that I mean I, I you know I now I definitely want to read that and it's so <laughs> important you know to, yeah. to know about those things like that that's fantastic I'll definitely um, look for that. Yeah, I'm trying to get to, we're trying to work out our schedules to get Dr. Gilmartin on the show. He made a tremendous difference in in my career just a, just a few years in. I'm I'm certain that I would be divorced and uh, very lonely right now if not for him. Wow. Um, and getting back to your writing on a less depressing topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, to in in reading through this, it seems like your your book, your writing, um, is a Venn diagram of of several fiction genres and subgenres. Uh, where do you think it belongs on the bookshelves? Oh, you know, this is the best question because I have been uh, sort of quietly tormented by this for ages um, since my first book came out. It was an amateur sleuth um, novel, and so I think you know, the general sense is that that belongs in a cozy section, but it wasn't a cozy book at all. It was actually a very dark book. And I was told by so many different bookshops, like, we don't even know where to shelve you. <laughs> and so <laughs> I am not making it easy for anyone. Um, the new book is, um, I think, has been classified in completely divergent ways. I know that it's um, uh, been uh, considered domestic suspense, um, domestic thriller, and yet at the same time, it is a police procedural. Mm -hmm. I am not making anyone's life easy um, by yes. doing this. For my own purposes, I think of everything that I write, though, as psychological suspense or psychological thrillers, because one sort of through line, one constant in all of my work is exploring psychology. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say that, you know, that would be um, where I naturally gravitate to. But yes, in the new book, because you have, uh, you know, NYPD perspective, suspect perspective, um, bystanders perspective, another perspective I won't go into because it would be spoilery, but you actually, you know, cover these different bases. And so um, for me, it's always just, you know, does the reader get into the story? Like, is the story going to engage the readers? Are they going to believe in the characters and want to follow them? So when I'm writing, I never think about trying to fit into a category. I'd like to think that years from now that this will be considered normal and that there'll be, you know, a recognition that, you know, it's, it's good if a book fits into several characters. But I will say, um, until recently, it's actually been a really challenging thing because, you know, often stores sort of, don't know where to sell you and your own publisher doesn't know how to market you. Um, I will say though, with my current publisher with Thomas and Mercer that they were excited that the book crossed genres. Um, they were oh, the fantastic. first people that, that actually said to me, yeah, they, they were like, this presents such an opportunity. And I said, well, everyone else is having difficulty with this. Like, don't you think it'll be a challenge? And for them, they were like, no, it's the opposite. There are so many different points of entry, like for people to be interested in this. And so it's the first time anybody has ever told me that, um, you know, that it actually opened up opportunities rather than making mm -hmm. it difficult. Um, and the book actually did land on the, um, the Amazon charts, like their own bestseller list. So knock on wood, the, the strategy yes. has paid off so far. <laughs> Fantastic. 
Now, in, in terms of that, um, from a, a craft perspective, you know, there are traditional obligatory scenes within the genre and within subgenres. Um, how do you try to balance the, that, that pendulum between, you know, having a, a, a very original and risky story on the one side and then a very tried and true, almost rut like story recipe driven on the other side and balancing these genres? That's such a great question, because if you were to take one small sacrifice apart and just sort of look at the basic story, I mean, the story of a missing woman and, you know, her troubled boyfriend who, you know, has suspicious things going on in his life, Mm -hmm. that is a really tried and true story. Like that is, I mean, you turn on the news and you see stories like that, you know, never mind looking at fiction. So, you know, it, I kind of look at it, I guess, that there were really um, plot-wise, you know, we just kind of keep telling these same stories. There's a missing person, there's a dead body. You know, that's not what's original. It's never what's going to grab people's attention. What can be original and engaging are the characters themselves. And, you know, I think what draws the reader in is wanting to know what makes those people tick. And so even though the story does cover you know, some very familiar ground. I mean, the missing person trope, I I could name, you know, a thousand books that do that. But, you know, following these particular characters in this investigation, one of the things I think that people have responded to the most is how the character of um, Sharon Sterling, the detective, evolves. That she starts out with a very strong gut instinct about Alex Trainer because he was involved in another death a year earlier, because he, um, you know, he's, he's been involved in some shady things. You know, he's, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I say, he's using illegal drugs. There were some things that are going on in his life that are not always on the up and up. So she just focuses on him immediately like a laser. Like, I know this guy is guilty, you know, looking at every aspect of his life. She finds, you know, holes in his alibi. I mean, he, he just, you know, he's he's a very questionable character. But partway through the story, her husband really challenges her because he points out to her that her father, who was a soldier who came back with PTSD and who really, you know, suffered terribly from the condition, wouldn't talk about it. But, you know, his his life was really torn apart. Um, Her husband points out that she carries the ghost of her father with her and that... Mm. You know, she's looking at Alex in a similar way, looking at him as a ticking time bomb, the way that her father turned out to be. Uh, There's a backstory there that I won't get into, but basically her father had a really tragic death. And um, that is something, and the pain from that is something Sharon carries with her. And the fact that she didn't stop it before it happened is something that she carries with her as well. And so it gives her this extra layer of guilt. Um, and kind of, you know, pain over the fact that she couldn't arrest Alex a year ago and, you know, she's going to get him Mm -hmm. this time. What her husband points out to her is that, you know, instinct is not a superpower. We all (laughs) tell ourselves that, you know, our gut, you know, our gut knows these things and that, but, you know, he tells her, this is your memory. This is your experience. You know, these are your biases. This is, you know, you need to look at the case more objectively. You need to sort of set aside like your own feelings and come at it in a different way. And so I think that is one of the things that's really surprised people. They're so um, used to this 
trope of like the relentless detective who they don't have a personal life. All they have is the case that they're on and they've, you know, they've got to get the person who's responsible. And in Sharon's case, it's like she really evolves. Like she actually changes in the course of the book. And I think it's things like that that grab people because what's real and what's human touches us. And it shows us a sort of possibility for change. You know, that's exciting. So it's sort of like this, the the basic plot, I think, is never the exciting thing of the book. That might be the sort of, um, you know, it's a mechanism for getting the story going. But what you're really there for are the characters themselves. Who was your first writing mentor and and what was that relationship like? Oh, my goodness. Um, I guess I've had, you know, several along the way, um, you know, even from the very beginning when I was in grade four, my teacher gave me um, a copy of Mary Stewart's Little Broomstick. And in it, Mm. she wrote, looking forward to reading your novels one day. And so even (laughs) from a very early age, I had wonderfully encouraging teachers. I had a high school teacher um, who was incredibly encouraging um, about my work, Mr. Baker. Uh, he is delighted now that I am uh, writing novels. He's, you know, really, it's, it's kind of lovely to have the sort of cheering squad of teachers who yes. knew you. Um, on the professional front, I have had so much kindness extended to me by other writers. Uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, sort of going back years, has been Megan Abbott. And mm-hmm. back when I was publishing short stories, but not yet, um, didn't have a novel ready or anything like that. I met her at, um, I think I must have gone to an event of hers or something like that. And we had a conversation and she ended up uh, recommending me for a short story reading series um, called, uh, it was like Kettle of Fish, which is in New York. Um, And it was just like such a generous thing to do when my first novel was coming out. She blurbed it. Um, She is just an incredibly talented, brilliant writer, but also a brilliant human being and just tremendously kind. And I've had um, wonderful experiences with people like Harlan Coben, Mm -hmm. Sarah Paresky, some of these authors that I've been reading their books for years. I mean, I discovered the V.I. Warshawski books when I was in high school and just loved them. And then to sort of go on and meet these authors and find that they are like warm, wonderfully supportive people. So very, I've been very, very lucky. So yeah, I would say that there've been a few mentors along the way. Now, a recurring theme on this podcast is that most people only need about a decade of consistent effort, putting in real blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. Um, (laughs) Seems to me that this is especially true for authors and musicians. Uh, How does your experience compare to that? Oh, I would absolutely agree. Um, I would say, I think when I started out, I assumed that it would be easier for me because my background was in writing. I'd been a full-time journalist for years and I'd written, as you said in your intro, 18 nonfiction books. And so, you know, I had this dream about writing fiction. And when I finally, you know, buckled down and decided that I would do it, I discovered that it was like using a muscle that had never really been flexed. So that even though I had all of these writing muscles and deadline muscles and things when it came to journalism, that I could write, you know, a thousand word um, article in the same amount of time that it took me to write maybe a hundred words of fiction. That it was a very different world. It was a very different mental space to occupy and extremely challenging. Um, So, yeah, so definitely, (laughs) you know, that was a surprise starting out. Um, And then just in terms of success, I was 
you know, I know I've been incredibly lucky. My first book, uh, The Damage Done, you know, it, it did win um, awards for best first novel, um, won the Anthony Award, which was such a huge honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, there was recognition and a certain amount of attention that came with that. But you also know that you're just a very tiny tadpole you know, in in a very big world, that the print run of that book was tiny, that I was sort of known in the mystery community for it, but not sort of by a wider, you know, range of readers. So, I mean, just in terms of like commercial success, the latest book, you know, One Small Sacrifice, Knock on Wood, has been the sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of like what any writer would hope, like it's really yes. taken off and it's, you know, getting a lot of attention and has a lot of readers and you know it has taken me it's about a decade it's like you said it's like a decade and writing all these other books and you know dozens of short stories and all of that in the meantime to sort of teach me what I needed to learn to write this book um you know it it, it really it's one of those things like yep takes a very long time to be an overnight success <laughs> Now, what uh, what do you have going on right now in terms of like your works in progress or upcoming releases that folks should be on the lookout for? Um, what's what's next on your horizon? So I've just been uh, going through the edit for my next novel, which is the second book in this new series. It's not a spoiler to reveal that Detective Sharon Sterling and her partner Rafael Mendoza are going to be um, back. The new book is called Don't Look Down, and that'll be out, I think, February 11th. Uh, 2020 from Thomas and Mercer. And in that story, there's there's an entrepreneur, a very young entrepreneur who's being blackmailed. And at the beginning of the book, she meets with her blackmailer to pay him off. And the meeting Mm. goes disastrously wrong. And the case picks up from there. So um, there's that book. On the short story front, I'm very excited um, to be part of an anthology called At Home, at the Dark, at Home in the Dark, which was um, edited by Lawrence Block, who is just, you know, one of my favorite writers of yes. all time. It is a terrific book. Uh, it has a cast of writers, including Joyce Carol Oates, um, Joe Hill. Um, Nancy Pickard, Wallace Strobies, uh, Laura Benedict. It's it's a really great, great, great list of writers. And that just came out. Uh, it's been out now for about a month or a month and a half. And so I would, you know, hope people would check that out. So when you are not, uh, not writing, I assume you're reading as most, most writers are prolific readers. Um, and I wonder if you have a favorite fictional detective or a favorite crime show. Oh, wow. Um, those are both tough because with the fictional detectives, there are like sentimental <laughs> favorites yes. and then newer ones. Um, I would say, I mean, one that I'm really um, a huge fan of is Rachel Housel Hall. I don't know if you've read um, her uh, police detective series. No. Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to remember the name of. The first, it's um her detective is Eloise Norton and I think the first book in this series is Land of Shadows but don't hold me to that I could be wrong um she's four books in now and it's wow. just a terrific re- recurring character so that would be sort of like a a new favorite I'll say um oh my goodness it is so hard to to pick from like mm-hmm. the the you know and are you including 
private investigators as well as because sure. uh, I because I, I love the Ed McBain books like I, I'm thinking now like oh my goodness I love the I Warshawski like the Sarah Paresky books I love the Ed McBain books um, there's like a whole slew that I just um, that I just adore and I guess some of it spans like from really sort of you know classic fiction going back mm -hmm. like 60 70 years to stuff that's coming out now um, but I yes, as you as you guessed I'm a very avid reader and uh, Sort of always happy to, to meet interesting new characters and um, great detectives. So then keeping that last answer in mind, I, I saved my, my hardest question for last and I okay. asked <laughs> to come on the show. Um, God forbid it should happen, Hillary, but were you to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, who would you <laughs> work in the case? Would you put Norton on the case, Sterling and Mendoza, or would you bring in maybe even a revenge artist, a uh, a CIA operative to to Oh wow! I mean, yeah, because once once you say murdered, I mean, because right there, it's sort mm -hmm. of like, do I want something? You know, do I want like the Continental Op coming in and looking at this case and maybe taking out a whole town if necessary? <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, my goodness, I, I guess honestly, like I, I think of Sharon as like, you know, Sharon Sterling, she's so passionate and, um, you know, she's great at her job. Like I would certainly want her to be, you know, in my corner if, um, you know, if there were a police investigation, if for some reason there were a technicality and someone got away, you know, with a crime, I would want V.I. Warshawski to be on the case because she is relentless too and uh she would definitely get the perp so there's the cop answer but there's the private investigator because we know that cops for you know there, there are sometimes technical reasons that come up mm -hmm. why someone can't be charged with a crime so i'm i'm covering myself there i've got my my detective and my pi <laughs> it's uh, funny there occasionally there are a lot of task forces that show up on this with an investigator and an assassin just in case <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, you know, honestly, when you said that, I was thinking, I don't know if you've read um, Chris Holmes' book, The Killing Kind, um, yes. but he has a terrific um, assassin in uh, Michael Hendricks, who his specialty is knocking off other hitmen. So it's the kind of case that he would take, because if I was murdered, then, you know, Michael Hendricks would go after the guy, you know, or the, the woman, I don't want to be sexist. Uh, whatever it is, the assassin who did it, you know, Michael Hendricks would go after. So that, that would be another good way to cover the basis. I love that we're all sort of like so um, in this dark space mentally that we'd sort of be like, yep, we're going to have the police investigation, but we're also going to cover our bases with some um, assassins, too, because yes. that could be necessary. I greatly appreciate you spending time and, and helping us, uh, all, all of us, myself and the audience included, develop further develop our, our craft and our, uh, our writing. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate your wonderful questions um, and just being on your show. This is a terrific experience. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been critically acclaimed author Hillary Davidson. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.